0: Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Good
1: evening and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, wherever you are in the world. I'm Damien Barr and I'm your host for this evening's event. Thank you for joining me in conversation with the brilliant Douglas Stewart as we consider the making of Shuggie Bain. This event is part of the Made in Scotland series and is supported by the British Council. This year's entire festival programme is entirely free of charge and this is only possible thanks to the generosity of supporters and donors, that's you. If you enjoy this evening, and I trust that you will, I hope you'll consider making a donation so that the Book Festival team can continue the great work. Your support really does make all the difference. While you're all still arriving, a few words on how this evening's going to work. In a moment, Douglas will read for us. And even though we won't want him to stop, we'll talk for a bit and at 6.15, we'll take as many of your questions as we can. So please do start posting those. Tonight's book is all about Glasgow, Mother Glasgow, her incredible people, her unique charms and particular problems. So we will be offering simultaneous translation for people in Edinburgh. (laughs) <laughs> Shuggy Bain is a story that couldn't happen anywhere else and it perfectly captures the city that I was in love with but also terrified of when I was growing up just a few miles down the road at Motherwell. Shuggy Bain is a wee boy growing up in 1980s Glasgow, and his world is Agnes Bain, his glamorous, calamitous mother who's slowly, ever so slowly, drinking herself to death. Basically, she's Liz Taylor by way of the Barras. Shuggy tries to save her and find himself in a city that is both bleak and dazzling. This novel will break your heart, only to make it bigger and stronger and more generous. It's hard to believe that this is Douglas Stewart's first novel. It is nothing short of incredible. The language, the characterization, the world. It is, in a word, gallus, or in three words, pure dead brilliant. And it deserves all the praise that it's getting and to be right at the top of that Booker list. Douglas was born and brought up in Pollock, but has lived in New York for 20 years. And that's where he joins us from now. Hello, Douglas.
0: Hello, Damien. It's good to see you again. And to you, how are you? I'm very well. I've been dreaming about being in Edinburgh ever since I think I put pen to paper. So this is huge for me. Thank you. Oh, it's, listen, it's an absolute delight to have you here.
1: And this event was booked months and months and months ago when we thought we would be mincing around Charlotte Square together, and, and we're not. This is the closest we'll get to it. There might even have been a digestif at CC Blooms. I could, that. I could have seen that in our future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, before we go into your reading, I just want to talk a wee bit about everything that's happened for you recently, because the book is long-listed for the Booker Prize and it's just been getting an incredible amount of praise from some unlikely quarters as well it has to be said from some surprising places tell us a wee bit
0: about that oh it's been incredible i mean i think when you write a book um all you can do as a writer is just write the very best book that you can and writing the book is a wonderful thing it's an amazing space to be in but then when the book is published it can be quite uh, you know it can be really loaded with anxiety and so none of this i ever foresaw or expected or um or even there to hope for, really. And so it's been fantastic to be on the booker list. But I was telling you earlier, I just received a postcard from Ken Loach, which is my casual. <laughs> uh, just casual. Things you we know. say now. Things you say casual. now. <laughs> but that's just a dream for me. You know, he's been such an inspiration. His work has uh, actually yeah. to Juggy. And so it's phenomenal. Yeah, I actually, it makes perfect sense that Ken Loach would absolutely
1: um, love this because he's all the way through it like a, like a stalker rock. Um, it's it's amazing. Um, will you read us a couple of bits before you and I have a have a chat?
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is what the book looks like, but actually, the one I read from looks a wee bit sort of battle worn. But I wanted just to read two short sections for you um, that focus on Agnes Bain, who, as you said, is the proud, little bit vain mother oh. of the family, and then also mm. uh, she is married across sectarian lines and married. Uh, her husband, who is a Protestant, and his name is Shug Bain, he's a taxi driver. And he is not a great man, he sort of spends his time philandering across the city. So this is really portraits of both of them where where we meet them individually. Chapter two, Agnes Bain pushed her toes into the carpet and leaned out as far as she could into the night air. The damp wind kissed her flushed neck and pushed down inside her dress. It felt like a stranger's hand, a sign of living, a reminder of life. With a flick, she watched her cigarette doubt fall, the glowing embers dancing 16 floors down onto the dark forecourt. She wanted to show the city this claret velvet dress. She wanted to feel a little envy from strangers, to dance with men who held her proud and close. Mostly, she wanted to take a good drink, to live a little. With a stretch of her calves, she leaned her hip bone on the window frame and let go of the ballast of her toes. Her body tipped down towards the amber city lights and her cheeks flushed with blood. She reached her arms out to the lights and for a brief moment she was flying, but no one noticed the flying woman. She thought about tilting further then, dared herself to do it. How easy it would be to kid herself that she was flying until it became only falling and she broke herself on the concrete below. The high rise flat she still shared with her mother and father pressed in against her. Everything in the room behind her felt so small, so low ceilinged and stifling, payday to mass day, a life bought on tick with nothing that ever felt owned outright. To be 39 and have her husband and her three children all crammed together in her mammy's flat gave her a feeling of failure. Him, her man, who when he shared her bed now seemed to lie on the very edge, made her feel angry with the littered promises of better things. Agnes wanted to put her foot through it all or to scrape it back like it was spoilt wallpaper, to get her nail under it and rip it all away. And then let me introduce you to Shug, the husband that she's uh, frustrated with. Chapter three. That summer, when it finally came, was close and damp. For a nocturnal man, the days had felt too long. The long daylight was like an inconsiderate guest, the northern gloam reluctant to leave. Big Shug always found the summer days hardest to sleep through. The sun brightened the thick curtains till they were a vibrating violet, and the children were always noisiest when they were happiest. The door was constantly going with mouthy teenagers from other flats and women in strappy sandals traipsing the hall carpet, clacking pink feet and pink gums at all hours. As night finally fell, Big Shug pulled his black hackney round in a small tight circle. It spun like a fat dog chasing its tail and headed out of the Sight Hill estate. Seeing the lights of Glasgow, he relaxed back into the seat and for the first time that day, his shoulders fell from around his ears. For the next eight hours, The city was his, and he had plans for it. He wiped the window and got a good look in the wing mirror. Smiling to himself, he thought how smashing he looked. White shirt, black suit, black tie. It was a bit much for work, Agnes had said, but then she said altogether too much these days. As the smile traveled through his body, he wondered whether taxi driving was in his blood. Between him and his brother Rascal, it was practically a family business. His father would have enjoyed it too had the shipbuilding not killed him first. Shug pulled up at the lights under the shadow of the Royal Infirmary and watched a gaggle of nurses smoke a crafty fag. He watched them rub their pink skin in the cold night air and shelf their tits over tight folded arms. They smoked without using their hands, a fear of losing any body heat. He smiled slowly and watched himself react in the mirror. Night shift definitely suited him best. He liked to roam alone in the darkness, getting a good look at the underbelly. Out came the characters, shellacked by the grey city, years of drink and rain and hope holding them in place. His living was made by moving people, but his favourite pastime was watching them. The thin driver's window made a sharp slicing sound as he slid it down and lit a cigarette. The wind came rushing in and his long strands of thin hair danced like beach grass in the breeze. He hated going bald. He hated getting old. It made everything hard work. He adjusted the mirror lower so that he couldn't see the reflection of his bare head. He found his long, thick mustache and sat absentmindedly stroking it like a favorite pet. Under it, his spare chin wobbled. He tilted the mirror back up. The Glasgow streets were shiny with rain and streetlights. The infirmary nurses didn't linger, flicking half-smoked fags into the puddles and tottering back inside. Chug sighed and turned the taxi past town head and pointed down towards the city centre. He liked the drive from Sighthill. It was like a descent into the heart of the Victorian darkness. The closer you got to the river, the lowest part of the city, the more the real Glasgow opened up to you. There were hidden nightclubs tucked under shadowy railway arches and blacked out windowless pubs where old men and women sat on sunny days in a sweaty, pungent purgatory. It was down near the river that the skinny, nervous-faced women sold themselves to men in polished estate cars. And sometimes it was here that the police would later find chopped up bits of them in black bin bags. The north bank of the Clyde housed the city mortuary and it seemed fitting that all the lost souls were floating in that direction so as to be no trouble when their time blessedly came. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just sitting there like don't stop did you <laughs> do the audio i didn't do the audiobook no i mean there's so many characters in such glasswegian patter that i think it really takes a voice actor but it's done by an amazing voice actor called angus king i'm going to be checking that out and um, it's just it's
1: just it is wonderful to hear it in your own words and um, that description of, of Shug driving through the city it reminds me of the start of a, a novel called The Thousand Daughters of Jacob de Zoet by David Mitchell, where this gull flies in and, and we get a view of the city and it just unfolds so poetically. Um, and the city, of course, far from being a setting in the novel, really is a character and, and we'll come on to, to talk about that. But let's start with Agnes, who you read to us about first. When I finished the book, um, I thought... I thought to myself, it should have called it Agnes Bain. She's she's the sort of sun around which everybody else is a sort of distant planet um, compared to her. She really is at the center of the book, isn't she?
0: Yeah, she really is, and I think that's a fair sort of call out because actually Agnes is the beating heart of it. I think, um, but um, in many ways, because the book is looking at sort of poverty and how poverty crushes people, mm-hmm. the hope in those cycles is always for children that children will have a slightly better life for you that even if you can't sort of make it in your circumstances, your children will have a better life. That's often what keeps us going. And so Shuggy for me, is the hope of the book. You know, Mm -hmm. after everything he lives through and everything he goes through, not only with his mother, but just sort of being an effeminate young boy in the city, he is, I hope, the, the glimmer of hope. Yes, he very much is. But I mean,
1: Agnes is a woman who has hope. She certainly has ambitions. Um, she, she wants, you know, she wants to be, well, she wants to go into a better class of A, to be around a better class of alcoholic when she eventually gets herself there. But she's very much, she reminded me of a lot of the women that I knew growing up who had absolutely nothing. You know, they did not have, you know, two, two brass pennies, but they made it, they made it look like everything or their ambition was to make it look like everything. And, and I often was thinking about Agnes and that if she was a woman who didn't have ambition, there would be there would be no drama there, there would be no there would be no tragedy there. She has she has got hopes and she does have hopes for her
0: children as well, doesn't she? She does. And actually, I think some of the sadness of the book comes from sort of how realistic her hopes are, how small her wants are. I mean, Mm. she is a woman that wants to be able to provide for her family, to be in love with her husband. She wants to look her absolute best uh, in the way that we all do. You know, even when things are sort of crumbling on the inside, we want to put on a very brave face for the world. That's a very true thing across all time, I think. Mm. Um, But she also wants a sort of a She's living with her mother and father and her husband and their three children in the Sight Hill flats in the middle of the city, which is no longer because they've been torn down. And Agnes just really wants a front door of her own. She wants a home of her own to be with her husband and her children. And so those are just very realistic wants. And it's kind of quite crushing when she doesn't get all of those, you know, because they seem very ordinary things. But I think I've seen so much of that in my life, Damien, and that is often, you know, how it is yeah she she wants
1: she wants basic security she wants comfort and warmth and she also wants her husband to stop shagging everybody else in glasgow when he's out on the night shift i mean she she wants she wants fidelity and comfort doesn't she she's not getting fidelity from him though
0: she's not and i mean and part of that is quite a sad thing to talk about in a way because it was certainly the sort of the trust that i saw my own mother put in to the men in her life Um, You know, we live in a time now where there's so much more increased equality, perhaps not through all the classes, um, but certainly there is. And whereas women of my own mother's and my mother's friend's generation really saw sort of investing in a marriage as a way is what they were going to do in life. You know, they left their own mothers and fathers quite young. My mother didn't continue with her education. She sort of thought if she married a man and then built a house and built a life around that, then that was enough. That is life. That's, and that's a great life. But when that starts to go sour, when, um, you know, for a lot of other women in the book, when the pole of like a wage packet is kicked away from the family, um, mm-hmm. or in Agnes's case, where her husband is just the wrong man. He's a terrible. He's a terrible man. Then you start to see how sort of her options become very limited in life, and that I think is the is sort of the ballad of her life.
1: The um, the, the friendships between women in this book are so perfectly drawn. They are hilarious. And um, they are filthy. And 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 the, the the fights between them. The absolute you know the absolute brawls that, that they have. Um, but every moment, these women recognise one another as people, um, as as allies or enemies, but very much as people, whereas a lot of the time the men are dehumanising the women, they're not seeing them as as agents of their own destiny or their own misfortune. Um, and I think that that's one of the things you do incredibly well in uh, in the novel is create these relationships um, between women. There's a brilliant line where you say that as, girl, as girls, they had clung to one another like pearls on a string. Mm-hmm. Um, And I just thought, I thought that was incredible. And it has to have come from observing women like that at
0: close quarters. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, I was certainly raised by women and sort of in a universe of only women. You know, I am the son of a single mother. And, um, and much of the book is written from my own life. I probably didn't start by telling you that. But, you know, my mother was already in the throes of addiction by the time my first memories come. And she lost her own battle. But Shuggie is a work of fiction. But as the son of a single mother who is sort of suffering from addiction, my entire universe was either other single women or women who sort of, come through AA and offered a support network to my own mother. And so I saw a lot of things that young boys just shouldn't see and Mm. that's fine. Um, But also women are the strength of Glasgow and the men don't often say very much. So I was exposed to just like really wonderful vignettes all through my childhood of sort of compassion and uh, bravery but also fairly horrific things. And also, you know, as you said, a lot of it was very sort of about sort of solidarity or sisterhood, but there was also roaring fights in the street growing up between women. And that was just the sort of the tapestry of Glasgow at the time and, and what it was. And in a lot of ways, as a young boy, um, who also was sort of uh, ostracized by other boys because obviously I'm queer and so I was incredibly effeminate, um, that was just my entire world, you know, my mother and my sister.
1: Mm. and that- that that misogyny is the other side of that sort of toxic masculinity—a word that you wouldn't have, you know, that we words that we didn't have growing up there and then. But when you when you talk about growing up and your your own experiences of school that you've talked about in interviews, but also Shuggie's experiences of school as a character, where he, he tries to you know he, he tries to make himself invisible, he tries to be super good, and then he's if he's not there. He does all these different strategies, um, and his brother sees what's going on for him um, and tries to teach him to be more of a more of a man, and there's a really poignant scene in the novel where, where he talks about like, learning to walk, making room for your cock, which once you visualise that, really does kind of tell you what exactly what he was trying to do. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's not about dismantling that system or smash the patriarchy, it's about fitting in and getting by, isn't it? And, and that's what they're all trying to do.
0: Yeah, and you're right, and misogyny is at the heart of the book. That is the theme that sort of runs through. And it runs mm-hmm. from the men, but it also oftentimes through the chaplain, through the church, it infects the women to then turn mm-hmm. around and sort of use it against other women. But it is focused really on Shaggy's sort of sexuality because it's never really sort of um it's just a very base thing. It isn't that it's talking about his sexual preferences or about what he thinks of the views of the world, it's just he is too effeminate and therefore Mm. he is not right and why would you as a young boy want to embrace your feminine side? And so everyone that sort of engages with them sees it on that, just sees it before he does actually, because when we're first sort of introduced to that idea in his life, he's such a young child that he probably doesn't even have any notions of himself or any way to reflect upon himself and just very suddenly In the same way that Agnes becomes isolated through her addiction, he becomes isolated because he is a fussy, sort of precious, uh, you know, very verbose little boy and they just, that's not how boys are. And most of the book is about how do you survive in a situation? It's not about trying to correct the situation and or because they feel powerless, I think in that way, Um, but it is about how do you sort of push on and what is the resiliency uh, of the human spirit in that way. But I'm glad you sort of said that also about Shuggy because him being gay is actually quite a minor theme in his existence in a way. And I wanted to show that because actually both Agnes and Shuggy are entire people. You know, Agnes is proud, she's frustrating. She's uh, sort of governed by small wants, but she's also sort of smart and intelligent and very beautiful. And then she's an alcoholic. And it's the same with Shuggy. you know, Shuggy is exhausting and he's troublesome and he's resilient and he's determined and he's precocious and he's fussy. And then he's gay, and so that's just how I wanted to sort of um, to show that.
1: It's so interesting hearing you say about other people realizing it before before you do, or Shuggy in his case. There's a, a chilling line that comes up lots of times for Shuggy, which is where adults, both men and women, glimpse this wee boy um, and say, "You you want to fix that? You need to sort. You need to sort that out." Yeah. Um, and nobody ever, nobody ever really questions it. Everybody's sort of complicit in it, in the way that they're complicit and expect domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. just, it's just a kind of, as you say, part of this tapestry. Um, mm-hmm. And Shuggy, in a way, is, is the last to realise who he is.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's right. I found my own sort of like childhood, in a way, because I think I was, we were so poor, um, was all about conformity. But it was about mm-hmm. conformity for everybody, you know. Fathers all made the same wage and worked the same sort of jobs. And we all lived in council houses that looked kind of the same. And we all went to the same school. And so men were never really allowed to be any different or express anything around that, which also meant women weren't allowed to do that. And certainly sons were never allowed to do that. And so for Shuggy and Agnes too, I mean, Agnes actually is is rebelling against conformity because even though the, the, the village or the mining town knows that she is disintegrating on the inside, she has the audacity to present herself to the world as being better than the world. And that infuriates people around her. And in a funny way, it infuriates people about Shuggy too because they understand he's the son of a woman who's sort of disintegrating, but he also sort of has these airs and graces that mm. he's been infected with by his mother, you know? And part of that's probably my own childhood coming through. When you sort of, when your mother is probably uh, a relentless snob, you get a wee bit of that, you know? so um but it is it's about conformity i think
1: it's interesting you used the word snob i was thinking about that um as you were talking that it's more about a refusal to take on shame um or or to to a a desire to resist the 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 kind of what agnes sees as the dirtiness of poverty and that's why she's there in her mohair um (laughs) and why you know he's done up like Liberace is one of the neighbors say you know it's um it's it's a defiance, and that's one of the things that makes them both really, really attractive characters to me. Um, it's it's the way Agnes refuses to be ground down or like the other people. You know, they're not making they're not making an effort, and she's she's making an effort by what by what she wears. That's really important as well. Um, yeah. I think in terms of your other career, of course, which is the career that you mm-hmm. came to from being a writer, which is working in fashion. You pay really close attention to the clothes that everybody
0: wears. Um, in these books, particularly Agnes, she's got some great outfits. Yeah, thank you. I think, yeah, I mean, I'd always wanted... You're right that it's a refusal of shame and sort of, and that's what rankles people around them. But of course, they're exactly like the people around them, because it's not just a portrait of this one family who are going through a tough time when everyone else is flourishing. It was looking at a time when the working class and the families that I grew up with on housing schemes were struggling under like 33% unemployment. It was an Mm. enormously disruptive time and families were falling apart and addiction was sweeping across the city. But then Agnes, as we say, has the nerve to like pretend like that's not happening to her and that she's rising above it like a queen. Mm. But I had always wanted to be a writer uh, since I was a young man, Damien, but between my own mother's addiction, between bullying at school and just between sort of the deprivation in the area I grew up in, school was hard. And, you know, there was a lot of kids not having their... Their needs met or just coming from difficult places and so when it came to school school was just a riot and so by the time it came for me to make my choices and say that I wanted to be a writer it just wasn't something that was seen for me because my English is essentially an academic subject and I just couldn't have followed the the thread of academia like that through my my high school experience and so I went into visual arts I went into I was really fortunate and you know to grow up in Scotland where the poorest kids have access to to world-class educations, but I went into textiles, which was seen as sort of the intersection of um, art or creativity and manufacturing, right, for Scottish people. And so that was a great thing for me, but coming around to write Shuggy was about sort of realising some furloughed dreams of mine and some, like, trying to get to where I was actually meant to be as a person in the universe. But my visual um, background, I hope, Brings a sort of a uniqueness to Shuggy because for a lot of the first time when I was starting to write the book, I just felt inferior or inadequate. Like I didn't, I didn't come up through an MFA. I didn't have that education, and it took me a while to. That's sort a of very go. American perspective. That's you can tell ah, you here. You can tell I've been like here. I didn't yeah, Iowa. I can't write a book. <laughs> I didn't Go to Iowa. I don't have a. I don't have a degree in English literature or Victorian studies or anything that often is very helpful in these times. Um, but what I do have is a visual art education. And so, but when I unlocked that, I realised that maybe there would be a strength in that in my writing and just mm-hmm. tried to do the best that I personally could, I guess, is the, the long way to say it. Well,
1: they're very, they're, they're, I mean, I can close my eyes and I can see Agnes. There's so many details that you use um, to talk about how she appears, the brilliant bit where, you know, she has scratches on her shoes and she colours them in with a marker, um, The way that, the way that she does her hair, the way, that, the way that the makeup goes on and doesn't ever seem to come off. Um, you know, there are so many, um, it's, it's not superficial, it's, it's her armour, it's her way of facing the world and saying that I'm different. And I think it's really interesting that that was a starting place for you a, as a visual writer, um, somebody who's coming from the visual arts into writing.
0: Yeah, I think the thing about visual arts is you're always observing and you're always noticing. And those were mm. the details that built a character. Like, you mm. want to notice the things that actually tell you something about the interior life of Agnes and Shuggy. And so that's what I sort of hope that I have done there. Um, but also, I'd wanted to create as immersive a world as possible for the reader. And sometimes leaning on sort of visual or painting something for someone rather than telling them about it is the best way to do it. You know, I realized that I was sort of um, showing a lot of readers a glimpse into a world that the readers themselves might not be a part of or have access to. And if I was going to do that, I didn't want it to feel like people were allowed to come in and gop at these people that I love, this world that I love. I wanted it to be an extended stay and I wanted it to be as immersive as possible. And so I wanted to make sure that as a reader, the reading experience of the book sort of surrounded the person if I could.
1: Does that yeah. Make sense? yeah no it''s it's, a, it's an immersive experience and I mean so much of it was so familiar to me from my own childhood um but also distant because you know you were growing up and you were you were as far as I was concerned in the big city and i was i was in a village so you were very glamorous and um <laughs> but, uh, I, I did feel immersive and it did it did it does feel familiar and it doesn't feel like you know poverty porn or you know like you're um trying to translate this experience for people um in a way that makes it palatable for them or that encompasses any kind of moral lesson i was thinking about garth greenwell and how he was talking about how you know he writes you know he doesn't he's not interested in making queer sex legible for a straight audience and and it made me think about you and your and your intentions as well which of course is the way that you end up reaching out to lots of people is by being so specific and yeah. um and so focused, you end up, you know, having that universality, um, but it's unapologetic and that's one of the many, many things um, that I love about it. Thank you. We, we talk- I- Sorry. Oh no, I
0: was just going to say, I think, I mean, I've said this before and I hope it doesn't sound glib, but I never had expectations for the book. And so when I wrote the book, I wrote it only for myself. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about the gaze or who you think ultimately is going to read your book. I just didn't ever know it would ever see somebody else. And I think it was about three or four years before my husband even read it. And then it was 10 (laughs) years before anyone other than my husband read it. And so I was, part of it was feeling, I don't know if this is for me and harboring a lot of sort of baggage from my childhood. But another part of it was just, I loved this world and I loved these characters. And I didn't want, I didn't have any need to let them go. I just wanted to be with them and write more about them. And one of the drafts of the book, I think I told you before was 900 pages single spaced it was a mon- I mean, this is a monster. This is a trilogy, almost in a way, and so just I just wanted to be sort of a part of that, and so in writing about it, I never thought about somebody else's gaze or the middle class gaze or the mm-hmm. English gaze, um, and so that's been that I think is is really true about the book. But the other thing that's been remarkable, Damien, is how I thought I was writing an incredibly specific story in terms of place and in time and in family, mm-hmm. and the reaction to it. And the amount of people who are able to connect with it has been both like so heartening and then also super disheartening because it's a universal story. And right. I think so many people, so many kids, so many mothers, um, so many people just living in poverty. We saw the poor woman who died yesterday with her son next door. I mean, that was horrific, 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 but it's there. It's at the end of our street. And mm. so I wouldn't also want someone to like approach the book of Shaggy and think it is a specific time and a place because it's all around us. 33% of kids are living in poverty. And so that's mm. a, a big thing.
1: Yeah. No. I, I mean it's a it's in a way it's a period piece, but that doesn't mean that it's in the past. No. Uh, it doesn't mean that that, that that those circumstances aren't still there for loads of people. Um, and of course the, the universality of that resistance and, and striving to get to get beyond it. Um I was just thinking about you and your own and your own story. Um, and you know, you took 10 years to write to write this book um, and how you enjoyed being there. I mean, it's a painful world, it's a difficult world, but how for you um, living in America and having grown up where you did, that it must have been a way for you to be back in that uh, world in a way that was safe and where you also had perspective on it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a a good thing because you obviously wrote an amazing memoir about Maggie and me and I chose to write fiction. Um, But part of writing the fiction was processing my childhood and being able to turn often what was quite traumatic into art. And, you know, writing the book did a lot for me as an adult. You, I mean, probably you feel the same way, but men from the West Coast of Scotland are never encouraged to speak about how they feel. And we're never encouraged to think of ourselves exceptionally, either exceptionally great at something or exceptionally hard done to. And so throughout my entire childhood, when something horrible would happen, the refrain was always, aye, there's bad things for everybody, everybody's got it hard. And you internalize that. And so you just keep it to yourself. And so, and it's super damaging to men, which means it's super damaging to every, you know, if men are have the power in the world, then it makes it damaging for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, so part of writing Shuggy for me was a way to like untangle a lot of things. And although the book is fiction and the scenes in the book are fiction, um, it did help me sort of (laughs) wish fulfill some things and clarify some things and just also feel seen in a lot of ways because we don't often, um, especially from a kid and a mother's point of view, um, don't often feel so seen.
1: It's interesting that you used the veil of fiction to make yourself seen. Um, and also unseen, right? I mean, it enables you to put stuff in the places where it maybe didn't start out. It enables you to hide um, stuff to change things too. Is that why you chose fiction rather than the
0: memoir? Or did you start out a memoir and go to a novel, or was it always a novel? You know, I never started out as a memoir, and I think there's a lot of reasons. You're right about sort of what you want to keep for yourself and what you want to unveil to the world. And I think mm. that's a conversation about, you know, how much as a human being do we want to share and really put that out there for us. But funnily enough, when I sat down and I started writing Shuggy, very, very quickly, the characters rushed into the center of the book and pushed mm. my own experience to the side. They dwarf me and because of the sort of, you know, the sort of the scale of the book, I guess, or the sweep of it, it dwarfs my own experience as a wee boy growing up in Glasgow. Um, like almost instantly, almost in the first couple of pages. And so Mm. I just let it do that. And so I understand poverty. I understand homophobia. I understand how exhausting it is to love a parent who's suffering with addiction, but I didn't understand all the rest of it because I didn't live through it. And so fiction, it was always fiction, I guess, is a way to say it, because Mm. it dwarfs my experience. Mm. No, I,
1: I, I can see that it's, and I'm not asking that in some weird Passag way, because I think I get, I see a lot of novels where I read them and I think, oh, I just wish you'd written a memoir. And I, I absolutely, I feel that your heart is beating all the way through this book and you can see where your experience comes into it. But it's truly a novel that, that, that stands on its own. It's a, it's, it's a work of fiction, but I mean, all fiction is informed by, you know, as so it's it's, it's, we can go and research things and pull information in, but it has to. The heart of it, I think, has to come, you know, from you. And I think if anybody was to, if anybody was to read my novel, um, if they would read the memoir, they'd look and they would think, "All right, this is a very different place and time." But absolutely, these are the themes that he's, you know, it's mothers and sons, it's survival, it's, you know, it's friendship, um, it's it's all those things. So I think, I mean, I think I'll always be writing about those things. I suspect you. We'll always be writing about a lot of the themes that are, that are in here because you're just not
0: done with them. I'm just, I'm just not done with them. That's totally true. But, but I would love to ask you why. With Maggie, and me is tremendous, and it's tremendously brave okay. as well. Why did you choose to write a memoir? Did you always know? Um, no.
1: <laughs> so I, I set out to write a novel, mm-hmm. um, and it kept being being about me, and it was very thinly veiled um, <laughs> again and. Um, and I thought, well, maybe if I write some true stuff, I will, you know, I'll get, I'll get that out of the way and then I can start to make stuff up. So, you know, I, I started writing down sort of scenes um, um, and they were things that were very close to the surface, even though they were a long way ago in time, what I found was when I started to write them, they felt very present. They felt, it, you know, really made me realize just how much, you know, I might've had lots of therapy, I might've done lots of living, but actually that pain is just, it's just there. Those bruises might have faded, but that you can still feel the contact, you know? And, um, and so it, it felt very live when I started doing it. Um, and, and, it, and it, although it took seven years, um, I think part of the reason it took that amount of time for me as it did for you, you know, you did 10 years with us, is that I can't hand on heart say that it was always a pleasure you know, writing about terrible things that had been done to me or that, you know, some of the things that I'd seen. But it was, I felt so alive and I felt so present and I felt so in it. And, um, and there was a satisfaction to going back to the past from the present and seeing it differently. And Understanding it, and also I think I often say this to people when they're talking about memoirs that it's not about remembering; it's about reliving. And that was sometimes really hard to put myself back in a room with a man who wanted to kill me, for example. It was terrifying. Um, I put off writing that for a long time, but but also I uh, I got up at the end of the day, shut my computer, and went back into my house, you know, where I live with my husband and my chickens. So it 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 reaffirmed that I was all right, and it helped me process. a lot and it and it also changed a lot as well. I thought with memoir that I would be um just recording or transcribing the past somehow. Um and that's you know the past doesn't stay the same. It's not like a door that you close and you walk back in and the furniture hasn't moved. It's like, you know, you open the door again and it's just like it's like polargeist. You know, it's just it's all <laughs> there, it's all energized and it's all it's all kind of flying around you. So and it changes when you, as you deal with it. It changes as you write it. And and that was an interesting experience to then write a novel was that, you know, um, I hadn't realized how much of the novel would be not, you know, making stuff up in the present, but actually drawing on my emotional reservoir from the past. I just hadn't, I hadn't realized how, how fictive memoir could be and how true fiction could feel in the writing of it until I'd done both of those things. Um, So, but yeah, I had to write a memoir because my granny, Mac, always said that, you know, you had to tell the truth and, um, and my mom did too. And I felt like I felt like this was a truth that I had to tell because I realized I was ashamed of a lot of stuff and still scared about a lot of stuff. And and I wanted to kind of exercise myself, and I did. So congratulations! And Granny's always know best. So listen to your granny. She 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 absolutely she absolutely does all. It's interesting. I had to, you know she died before I could write it, because she did also always say, you know, don't wash your dirty laundry in public. So <laughs> tell, tell the truth, but not to everybody. You know, don't, you know, don't write a book about it. So um, I wondered how your mum would feel about the book
0: that you've written. You know, I think she would be, my mother's been, my own mother. Uh, not yeah, your but own mother, yeah. My own mother has been dead for almost 30 years now. And so she's yeah. been on a lot a long time. And I was telling someone the other day that one of the things You know, our personal relationship was very inverted when I was a kid, because when you care for someone who's struggling with addiction, you often, I was caring for the house, I was caring for her, I was caring for her body, I was caring for her mental health. And one of the things I used to do as a kid to sort of just stop my mother from spinning out of control was if I saw she was drinking especially hard, I would try and sit her down in a chair, and I would maybe be seven or eight, and I would get my school jotter out, and I would say, let's just write your memoir. Let me just write this down for you and transcribe it. And she loved that because it was a way for her to express herself. And no one was listening to women like my mother, right? No one wants to hear it or see it or do any of that. And so it was incredibly, it was a good way for us to bond, but it was also a way for me to keep her safe. And we never, ever got past the dedication. We never did. And it could take hours. And the dedication was always to Elizabeth Taylor, who knows nothing about love which for me, like, <laughs> she was so, uh, it's such a, like, what a statement to make for a working class, Glaswegian woman to tell Elizabeth Taylor, you know nothing. And I'm about to tell you in this book. And of course we never got further, but I think my mother would be relieved to have stories like hers heard. And I think she would be proud. And uh, yeah. I'll never know, but I think she would be, I hope she would be.
1: I'm sure she would be,
0: it's, it's a, a monument of love. It is. It is, and it's um, and I think for everyone in it, and even when people are doing bad things, I never see them as good or bad people. I just see it as a good or a bad time, and people mm. reacting in that way. And I don't think you could write a book that spans this much without love being at the core of it. But I always like love that's tested or love that's conflicted, and I think that's mm. always the most interesting. And so I hope it, I hope people see the love in the book.
1: Oh, it's a it's 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 a book all about. All about love, even and especially when love goes wrong or is denied or is misunderstood, it's absolutely a book um, with um, that that's just that's just full of love to the very brim. Um, I was wondering how you how the book had been received in in America as a as a as a Scottish text and using lots of Scots words because it's got lots of my favourites in there like bism mm-hmm. and hoormeister and hochin. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, the people in Edinburgh who don't understand those words either, but, um, you know, what did you think about when you were choosing to deploy um, uh, Scots words um, or not? How did you find that balance
0: um, of voice? I don't think I would ever write a book about Glasgow and about the people I love without fully embracing that, because I think it's one of the best facets of the city. It's so inventive and expressive and frank. And poetic and blunt as hell. And <laughs> I, I, I loved, like, that I was one of the big pleasures of the book is writing Glaswegian sort of dialogue, and also the the sort of the the gap between how Agnes presents herself, very sort of with the fake Mulgai accent, and then how the people around her are just very real. Um, And so that was brilliant. And I'm really blessed with a very courageous editor here in the States, who even when we were going through the edit process, I would say, well, I could make that a bit more accessible. And he was like, do not. He was like, it is perfect. And we have Google and we can figure it out. And so the feedback I think is is that American readers have to slow down a little bit. And it takes Mm. a couple of beats more for them to be able to absorb themselves in the book. But people are totally able to access it. And I think because the feelings are universal, then it's fine. But the the thing I was not prepared for is, again, I thought I wrote a book about Glasgow and about these people, but the sort of the, oh, this is my life, like letters from Idaho and letters from uh, the Ozarks and the Appalachian Mountains and even up here in Albany. And people are like, this is how it was for me. This is how unseen I felt. And uh, that's been incredible. That's the power of books. Um,
1: tell me about this image uh, that's on that's on the jacket because we were going to talk about it before, but we didn't get a chance. So uh, tell us about it now.
0: Yeah. Um, well, this I'm just really fortunate that Picador asked for my sort of input, and um, and I found this photo and it just spoke to me so profoundly, Damien. It's actually taken in Easter House in the 80s, which is. Uh, a housing scheme or two across from where Shuggy is actually set, but actually of the period. And I absolutely love just sort of the look of hope and how the boy is trying to look across mm. the housing scheme. It obviously has sort of um, feelings of crucifixion to it. And I think that talks too about the struggle that's inherent in the book. But mm. one of the most amazing things is everyone who's sort of seen the photograph and reached out and said, oh my God, my granny lived on the third floor flat. Or there was, I was told there was an Elvis impersonator on the fourth floor who, I think it's Balfouig Street. I might get that wrong, but Lost Glasgow did an amazing thing and actually found out the name of the actual boy, which is so mind blowing. I think his name was What's his name? I think it was Chris Kroom, I think. Has Um, he been in touch with you? He hasn't yet, no, he hasn't. And I hope he doesn't mind, you know, (laughs) he's now called Shuggy Bane and I hope he doesn't mind. But apparently there's an Elvis impersonator that would come out at 2 p.m. every day from the top floor flat and just prune to the neighborhood and then go in like a cuckoo clock.
1: (laughs) Or like the Mons Meg of of the Mons Meg of Easter House. It is is an incredible picture. Um, And the shades of the crucifixion Mm -hmm. um, are intense. Sorry, I must tear myself Mm -hmm. away from it. Makes me think about the- the the sectarianism in the book, um yeah, which again is part of the specificity of Glasgow in that place in time, although maybe, maybe still a bit now, I don't know as much. Yeah. But but um, you know, this idea that his you know his dad is a, a proud, you know, slick, arrogant Protestant and his and his and his mother's a Catholic, um, which makes him which is what well, what I am, which is, you know, half and half. <laughs> It's also <laughs> what I am.
0: It's also exactly what I am. And so I mean sectarianism for me as a kid, and especially for anyone that's listening outside of Glasgow, is a for me, I don't think it I don't think it's a part of Glasgow at every layer. I think it is a thing mm. that centers around certain house and estates and certain classes and but it was very much a daily part of my life. And sometimes it was casual and you know we thought of it as banter but you would think of it now in 2020 as absolutely horrific but when my mum and dad got married my mum's a lot of my mum's family didn't come to the wedding because same it same. was such a horrific thing to marry someone outside of your your religion and of course we're looking at huge divisions in the world now um and so it's insane for me to think, look back and think about how these white people who are actually quite identical could still find the most minute division between them. But sectarianism for me could be very casual at home. It could be aggression on the street. And then as I became older, we were organized into fighting gangs, you know, and we were expected to go over to Springburn and fight for our territory against the Catholics, which was insane because I was in a Protestant neighborhood, but my mother was Catholic. And so just the, I think the futility of it is worth putting on the page yeah i was all i was my mom was catholic my dad's
1: Protestant. and and um uh i was taught told by my mom she said if people ask what football team you support say you support mother well just didn't help <laughs> <laughs> just, it didn't help until mother started to do well but um yeah or to say mm-hmm. i support my legs and my legs support me and then you just get uh, that out. would have, that would
0: have been an even worse answer that would get you even worse even worse. up but actually one of the scenes that have stuck with a lot of readers from the book is at the beginning of the book where Catherine is coming out of work on, she's worked a Saturday, she's coming out into the Orange March. But mm-hmm. then that sort of like pointlessness where the boys sort of gang up on her and are about to run a knife through her, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're about to run a knife through her. You know, you wrote it. That was and and I was like, oh yeah. I mean, you know, the question about what football team to support is so tied to religion in Glasgow, and it could end in extreme violence if you answer it incorrectly. And so it must have been a terrifying time for the character of Catherine. Um, I'm going to
1: go to questions from the people who are watching with us, and this is a question from Callum. How do you think things would be different, if at all,
0: for Shuggy if he was growing up in Glasgow today? I think oh, that's, thanks, Callum. That's a great question. Glasgow, of course, is a super cosmopolitan city that has actually a really vibrant gay community. Um, and so I would hope that things would be hugely better for Shuggy today, but I'm not sure that progress always affects or comes to every social class at the exact same time. And so I'm not sure. I think if you're still poor, if you're still sort of, your entire universe is the wee few streets that you live on, um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think those can be incredibly... Uh, insulated and isolating places. So I think, um, and I write actually a little bit about this in my piece in the New Yorker, um, Found Wanting, because of course it's just about a gay boy looking for connection in a city. And so he turns to the personal ads on the back of pages of a paper because he can't find it on the streets around him. And so my hope is, is it would be much better for Shuggy today, but uh, I don't think progress always hits every class at the same time. Um, that's an
1: incredible story for people who are watching if they haven't found it in the New Yorker just go onto their website it's, a, it's an astonishing piece of fiction and to have your very first piece of fiction published in the New Yorker not bad um, <laughs> but it really, it really is very good and that is also how I found um, you know, how I found my way onto uh, Bennett's nightclub in Glasgow um, which was through writing to people adults in the back of contact pages because yeah. you know, there was no there was no other way Um, to to make contact with that gay community or that gay world out there.
0: How did you do it? I mean, I did it exactly the same way, you know. And one of the saddest things that ever happened in my life, I think, is when I suddenly became sort of like 22 and 23, there was kids that I went to school with that would say, oh, I was gay too. And they would come and seek me out and find me. And like the loneliness of that, right, is because Mm. we were all so busy concealing ourselves and hiding and just trying not to get your your face kicked in, I guess, Um, that it's such a lonely place. And they were literally, you know, a class away or a couple of desks away. And so that broke my heart when that happened. I think it was meant to be a happy thing, but actually it made me feel sadder. And so my entire, also just sort of like going to a nightclub by yourself at 16 and not knowing people was such an act of bravery that I couldn't quite do because I was also quite a lonely kid. So my entire gay experience as a young man was was writing these big Jane Eyre letters to men. And, the, you know, it's incredibly naive and really sweet now when you think about Grinder or Tinder or yeah. dating apps and how men meet each other. But I was like writing these huge letters to people, you know, all over the world. And it was, it was great for me. Were you, when you were writing those letters, were, they, were you still at home when you were writing
1: those letters? Were you not afraid of the letters being intercepted?
0: Well, after my mother died, I lived on my own. So when I was still in high school, I lived with my brother for a couple of years, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. He kept me on the rails. But then um, when I was like 17, 18, I lived in a bed set in Glasgow. So I was sort of by myself going to high school during the day, working every night and then working on the weekends, which also meant it was difficult to go to a bar or a club. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, I didn't have that fear. I was, I was sort of by myself at that point.
1: Um, when you went clubbing, we mentioned this uh, before. You went to Club X, so you were like a much cooler clubber than I was. <laughs> Dancing over in Bennetts.
0: <laughs> I was not cooler. I can't even bring myself to think of like the, the outfits that I used to wear. They were horrific. Uh, but you know, just but now it was uh, just actually I just found it really lonely because I think I was someone that was looking for sort of mental connection and mm. friends and nightclubs. Mm. Or maybe not for that. You can't talk. You can't really sort of get to the heart of it. And so I much preferred corresponding in the back pages of newspapers.
1: Those letters will be worth a fortune. Uh, they will start to turn up on like episodes of the Antiques Roadshow, framed framed letters. Um, I'm going to take another question from from some people out there. Um, Would the book, this is from Maureen, would the book, loved it, have been written differently had you still lived in Glasgow or has the physical distance impacted it? An interesting
0: question. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Maureen. Um, I think distance always helps no matter what I've ever done creatively. I think it's always good to be able to step back and look at something and just see the all of it. I don't know I would have had the courage to write it if I still lived in Glasgow. I don't know what my life would be like. Um, it would have been a different book, I think. Um, and I think the biggest thing that the distance sort of gave me not only being able to sort of see myself and the people I love in the city from a distance, but it also sort of let me disassociate in a way that was really incredibly helpful for me. Um, And like you said about sort of you would close the page or the laptop at the end of the day sometimes, and just not maybe being in it sort of didn't send me into dark places. I think if I'd have been conjuring that up and then also still there, I don't know that I would have been able to. Yeah, or even able to do the conjuring. Yeah, I think I think definitely the
1: distance and the perspective helps. I always remember a, a therapist saying that, you know, if you're face down on a uh, on a rug, it's just a mess. But if you stand up and look down, you see all these patterns. And that's, you know, that perspective of distance, just of the height of a person, enables you to see these patterns and connections. And I think that, you know, uh, I think that certainly you being in New York has given you the space and time and, and emotional distance to be able to,
0: so, like that, it's also a perfect sales um, metaphor damien i mean it's exactly what oh, they teach you visual it's exactly what they teach you in visual arts right like step away from it as much as you can because you can't see it when you're fixated on individual stitches oh i never thought about it like that i i i, I was just yeah, i was just so grateful to that therapist for saying it too, <laughs> but um,
1: um but yes you're of course you of course you're absolutely right yeah. you're absolutely right
0: are you still going to be working in fashion or are you going to be a full-time writer now I am trying to make the migration to full-time writing, but you will know as a writer, we all have other things we have to do. So um, I am just trying to blend those two things together with the goal of, of writing full-time. Hmm. Um, let me see if I've got time
1: for one more question. So please pray for me. I am, I am praying for you, I am. Um, doo, 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 doo. Your portrait of the Pithead community seems so grim, says Charles. Did you feel the need to create a fictional small community purely because setting it in a real one would have risked insulting actual residents? Um.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Pithead is an entire fiction. Um, yeah. and actually, it was mostly inspired by the movie My Ain Folk, who the director's name is, is a trilogy, is just... Flown out of my mind but wow. I, I think you know I set most of the book in actual places because I think the scale of the place can take the story and mm-hmm. where it felt like if I had said this is new Craig Hall or this is the specific place in Lanarkshire I mm-hmm. felt like it would have been I didn't know those people and it's a lot to sort of bring to their door so and also because um it really is a fictitious place I wanted a place where suit was rolling in the streets and that can only sometimes come from the author's mind.
1: When did you, you were saying earlier that your experiences in school were not great, Um, when did you start to read Scottish writers?
0: Not until long after I came out of school, I mean most of my reading at school was sort of curriculum based and then, uh, and at that time it was an awful lot of Shakespeare, William Golding, that kind of thing. and. you know, it was only actually probably when I started to come to America that I could again sort of, I was looking back to find more out about myself and who I was. One of the really. things about being an immigrant to another country is you're always confronted with people that said, oh my God, I love St. Andrews or I love the Isle of Skye. And <laughs> people growing up in Glasgow, you know, I couldn't tell you what Brother Glenn looks like. You know, I didn't, <laughs> you know, I really never thought. It. And so but I was anytime someone found out I was Scottish say, oh, have you read this? And and I just hadn't, and because I think we were always in Scotland looking on the outside, and yeah. and so um, when I s- suddenly discovered James Kelman and Agnes Owens and uh, oh, Agnes just, Owens, just I love her. Why, why? I mean, she's incredible. She's just she's yeah. just so not well known enough. I know Still. she really isn't well known enough. And actually, Gentlemen of the West and did a lot for me in order to like help me get Shuggy on the page. And also Janice Galloway. I mean, Janice. the trick is to keep breathing and the sort of the, the bravery of that book and showing someone disintegrating and not giving a care for the tenderness of the reader or the feelings of the reader allowed me to be really brave and strong with, with Agnes Bain, you know? Um, and so these are Scottish writers that have influenced me enormously, but I had to sort of go out and then look back to find them. Mm. But even- Janice uh, is an oh, incredible, sorry. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, even as a boy, you know, I didn't have any peace inside myself or peace outside myself to read books. And there was no books at home, Damien. And so it was only really when sort of that period in my life when I was corresponding with people in the back pages of papers that I could find a bit of time to like read books. And Tennessee Williams was one of my first, The Glass Menagerie, you know, sort of Amanda Wingfield and Agnes Bain have a little bit of a conversation going on and sort of what her children go through with her. Um, but then it was sort of, you know, Thomas Hardy and all of that. And I had really incredible um, English teachers who, even though they saw I couldn't quite concentrate on a book, kept feeding them to me and then started mm. to sort of take me off curriculum. And that was that was amazing.
1: All those voices that you described were in there. I was thinking about Janice Galloway and her sister, um, Cora um, and, and Agnes as well, with the glamour and the appearance and the un- unpredictability they are. They are incredible voices and, and, and you can hear them in the background, but, you know, it very much is your your own creation. I know it's autobiographical, but it is also just this immense, immense achievement in terms of fiction. It's one of the most beautiful books I have read in my adult life. And I know that everybody who's watching is going to rush off and get it. It truly is incredible. Um, and it's been lovely to talk to you about it again properly. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you all for your questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to every single one. There were lots. You can get your hands on a copy of Shuggy Bean in our independent online bookshop, which is shop.edbookfest.co.uk. Thank you all for being here this evening with me, Damien Barr, in conversation with the brilliant Douglas Stewart. I'll be back on Sunday with Andrew O'Hagan, and I hope that you can join me then. Enjoy the rest of your festival. Good night.
0: Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.